by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. I want to start off right ahead from where we were last week. This is week number two of our series, Soap. And we're looking at how the Holy Spirit brings a cleansing to a dirty world and more specifically to a sin-stained people, right? What the Holy Spirit desires to do is to wash and to cleanse and to change and to transform. If you're here, it means that that has either already happened to you Somebody say amen. amen. Or that you desire for it to happen. You come into church hoping to encounter God. You hope to be changed. You hope to be transformed. You hope to experience the things that maybe you've heard of others experiencing. Our desire in this church is that you also come in hoping that that will happen for others who are outside of the church as well. I think that there's a lot of churches who are only focused internally. You've heard me say here in this church, I believe that what the Holy Spirit wants to do is just bless everybody here, but keep our minds also focused on everybody who's still out there, on the outside, without Christ. I'd rather only have salvation and give everything else to everyone else who is not saved, that even one would be saved, than to have salvation and all these additional blessings, but watch people go to hell. Does that make sense to anybody this morning? Yeah. Right? Like, isn't it good enough just to be saved and then to hope that others would be saved? Or do we have to be saved and then we have to be restored and we have to be blessed and we have to have everything that our hearts desire at the cost of others going to hell? This series probably wouldn't be a popular series in a lot of places. <laughs> this series probably isn't something that, that most churches, especially, you know, smaller family churches that do want to see growth, would be on their list of priorities. What do you talk about in 2018? Everybody getting off their butts and going out to the streets and telling people about Jesus? No, I don't talk about that. <laughs> but I want to do what God wants me to do in this place. Our theme scripture is Psalm chapter 51, verse 7. It says, purge me. Say me. me. Say me. me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. See, everything that we desire God to do in our lives 
is so that we can help others have it done in their lives. Change me, heal me, wash me, convict me, help me, restore me. Give me your spirit. Don't keep it from me. Why? So I can help others know who you are, that they would be able to be saved. If your desire is only for you and it has nothing to do with others, I'm not so sure that God is going to grant you the desires of your heart. It's not his way. It's not who he is. Does he want you to be blessed? Of course he does. But he wants you to be blessed as a, by a byproduct of others being blessed. I've given more of my life to Jesus in the last 13, 14 years, whatever it is, than anything else or anyone else. And I've been blessed beyond measure. I could not have asked to be more blessed than I am now, but I rarely think about what is it that I need and what is it that I want and what is it that I have to have next. My waking hours are, are spent thinking about, well, Lord, what do you still need to change in me and how is that going to help other people come to know who you are more? Amen. I love Mel's testimony. Um, he sent us a picture. We were at lunch, and, and that's the way God works. Is Even after his outreach, we went to lunch, and Mel's like, hey, where are you guys at? Are you going to have lunch? I said, oh, man, I'm sorry I didn't tell you. We're over here at Soup Plantation. He's like, well, we're already sitting down at, at Divine. It's probably Divine that we're here. And then he has this testimony, right, of what transpires. He sent us a picture with that couple. The testimonies remain the same. Do you want to go? No. Are you built for that in your mind? No. Is it something that you long to do is go out and knock on doors? No. But is it what God has called you to do? Yes. And then what does he do with it? Within minutes, he uses you to encourage, in this case, another set of believers. But how many people watch them in that restaurant pay? How many non-believers saw something that they didn't have, but they could see that somebody else had it? Not only the, the relationship with God, but a boldness to stand out and say, I don't care who else is in this restaurant. All this has to be going on in the life of a, of a believer. And then it says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. The idea is that as we're washed and as we continue to be washed, then we can teach others, right, how to be cleansed and how to be washed, how to ultimately be saved from eternal damnation. Last week, we looked at Luke 14, 23. It says, then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Right. So we got to go out and we got to compel people to come into the house of God to encounter God, that they could be filled, that they could be changed, transformed, healed and washed. Right. But the key there is that the master says to the servant, how many of us have made Jesus master of our lives? Is he Lord of our lives? Do you do what he says, when he says, how he says? Or is he a consultant that you call from time to time? Is he a therapist that you let them know a little bit about what your situation or circumstance is, and then you expect them to just minister to you in that one area? Or is he a doctor, a surgeon that you lay dead on the table and he says, I'm going to fix everything? Lord, you have free reign. You're Lord. So when he says, the master says to the servant, go out and fill my house, we have to be servants. He has to be master. The bar has to be raised way up in our relationship with God. Amen. We have to serve regardless of personal feelings or leanings, and we have to cry out for further washing in the process. It's a hard call what this thing is called Christianity. The world has lied to us about Christianity, if I could just tell you that real quick. <laughs> they told us it was something else. They told us it would feel differently. They told us it was all about us. They told us it was about glitz and glamour and smoke and mirrors. It's not. It's about a day in, day out, walking with Christ, crying through it sometimes, angry through it sometimes, 
That's the reality of what Christianity is. Amen. Yeah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, For we who are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. What that means is this. This body, this mind, this heart, it's jacked up and it's torp. It's like a tent. It's not made for the long haul. But Paul says, I'm groaning and I'm burdening, burdened, not because I want to be less clothed. I want to be further clothed. I don't want the bar to be lowered. I want the bar to be raised. I want to get out of this flesh and into the spirit. I want to be empowered to live the life that I'm supposed to be living, not the bar lowered so that I can keep living it how I am now. He says, I'm groaning inside. God, make the bar higher, but put something in me that can reach it. Yes. Not God, lower the bar so I feel better in church. Amen. Paul's crying out for it. He's saying, keep washing me. This mind is terrible. He's saying, God, keep giving me your spiritual ability to endure because there's a thorn in my flesh that is making me limp and want to quit. Don't take the thorn, right? You already asked you, I already asked you three times to take it and you said no. So don't sit me down somewhere where I don't have pain. Give me the ability to endure the pain Amen. and to keep moving forward. Imagine if Paul had said, I'm tired of this thorn. I'm just over. I'm just going to sit in church somewhere and we don't have the New Testament. He's not inspired. Imagine if he said, why am I in jail again? I'm done. I'm not writing anymore. Imagine if he said, why am I shipwrecked again? Why am I bitten by this viper again? I'm done with this church thing. No, he kept going. Because that's the testimony of what it means to be a Christian. How many did he lead even in his suffering? He says, I'm poured out like a drink offering. Right? He's saying, my life is poured out for others. So in week number one of this soap series, this idea of others, we looked at being sincerely subjective. Sincerely subjective, it means sincere, genuine, real, transparent, honest, Subjective means based on uh, or influenced by personal feelings, taste, or opinions. We talked about telling your story, it needing to be a true story, and you needing to know the details of that story. When you talk to people, don't tell them a fake story or somebody else's story or part of the truth. Tell them the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I didn't like church, but it was good for me. Or God washed me and I loved every moment of it and I just loved worship from the first day I walked in. If that's true, tell that true story. If you walked in and you said, what is wrong with these people? Why are they raising their hands? Why are they crying? I feel awkward and I feel weird. Tell somebody that true story. That sincerity, that subjective part of what God does in our life, it has power in it to bring life into other people's lives. When it's real and they know it's real, this is, this is the society we live in. We've been convinced of something else, but we know sincerity when we see it. We know something real when we see it. Even when we're unsaved, we can see like, look, I may not believe what that person believes, but I believe that they believe it. Does that make sense? <laughs> when you tell somebody a story about what God is doing in your life, they're like, I don't even believe God exists. And I don't even think I can know him. However, I'm convinced that you believe he exists. <laughs> I'm convinced that something has actually changed in your life, and then they could, they could wish it away or, or assign it to something else. Oh, it's psychological, it's this, that, and the other, but that sincerity, that realness of your story is so powerful. That's actually what holds the power of evangelism. Right? It's your actual story, a sincere, sincere, true story of what God has done in your life has power in it. It's like dynamite. <laughs> I think all true God stories are good stories, and they have the power to change lives within them. 
If it's a true story, if it's a God story, it's a good story. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 28 puts it like this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I thought about it this week and I realized that many of us might be in a place where the current part of our story isn't so good. Anytime you look at a body of believers, you look at a church and you say, well, tell me the, the true story. It's got to be a good story because God says everything works for good for you guys, right? Oh, yeah, it's a good story, but it's a long story. <laughs> it's like 80 chapters at least. And I might be on chapter 7, and it's a terrible chapter. That might be where many of you find yourselves today, where you're in part of a good story, but you're in a bad chapter. <laughs> and you know what happens when you're in a bad chapter? You don't want to tell anybody about it. You don't want to go out and knock on a door and tell somebody about the goodness of God when you're in the middle of a bad story. Maybe we're in that part of the story where we don't want to be washed anymore. Maybe you're in that part of the story where Jesus isn't Lord of your life right now. He's Savior, but he's not Lord. Maybe you're in that part of the story where you're not really concerned with those who are going to hell and perishing and dying in their sin. Maybe you're in that part of the story where you're actually growing numb to conviction. You don't even feel bad about anything you're doing right now. And I thought about that. How am I talking about soap? How am I talking about washing and cleansing and changing the world and testimonies and sincerity and people maybe sitting in church saying, I don't want any of that. I'm not trying to tell anybody any story. Then I thought God has commanded us, like Mel said, to go out and make disciples. I thought to myself, this is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart with the truth of the word of God when you go out and you tell the world that, that you are in sin and you are going to die in your sin if you don't trust Jesus and if you don't allow him to wash you clean, you're going to die in your filth. That cuts the world and it hurts. But on the other side of that thing, it's cutting us. Because when you have to tell that story and you know it's true, but you know that you are not in submission to that God, that hurts me as a Christian. And it should hurt you as a Christian. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. But too many of us have chosen, instead of being hypocrites, we say, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing because then I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'll just sit here and I won't say anything. I won't do anything. I won't be used. I won't try to go out there and be a voice for the Lord. Then I won't be a hypocrite. I will just be a stagnant Christian. And God says, that's not the choice. The choice is you have to say it. Ray said it's got to be a fire in your bones that you have to let out, which means you have to let God continue to wash you. You can't be silent. You can't just sit. You can't take time off. You can't hope somebody else will do it. That's what sitting is about, right? Somebody else do that. I still want to be a part, so I'll sit, but somebody else be the voice. I'll be the butt so I can sit down somewhere. <laughs> we got to keep fighting for change. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 says, You have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, then you will receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just will live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. It's not by chance that this is the next chapter we're in in Wednesday night's Bible study. 
We finish chapter 9, and this Wednesday we start chapter 10. And what is it talking about? Listen, we are not of those who draw back. We are not of those who sit down. We are not of those who are just silent and let somebody else speak the truth of God. We are those who press in. We are those who endure. We are those who fight to keep being washed and cleansed. We've seen a lot of people in this church over the years leave. We've seen a lot of people stay and choose not to radically rebel against the enemy as well. You know, Ray says he's in tears and he's looking at all that God has done. And and I'm looking at all that God has done too, right? And here's the reality. Some people have come and gone. And some people will continue to come and go, right? Some people have taken that path and praise God. They're not going to hell. They're just going off in another direction with another church and another pastor. And that's good. Go, go do what God has called you to do. But the call is going to be the same there as it is here. And the standard is going to, should be raised there, wherever there is. And the standard is going to be raised here. But with our earthly eyes, let's just be honest. We can't help but look and say, dang, man, look at all that God has done. Where are you? But just like some have gone, some are here and not growing. It doesn't matter if you're here or there. If you're not growing, it's the same thing. If you're just looking for the bar to be lowered here or looking for the bar to be lowered somewhere else, it's the same result. We've seen a lot of people not only leave or stay wanting the bar to be lowered, we've also seen people stay and say, well, I want to push my agenda of what I think the church should be and how I think the church should run. Instead of submitting to authority, instead of submitting to a vision that God has ordained for this place. And on my end, it's easy to begin to say, Lord, maybe we should tone it down. Lord, maybe we should lower the bar. Lord, maybe I as the pastor should just let people do whatever they want to do. Why do we need to have such a high standard for every ministry? Does the setup ministry really need to understand all the links of ministry? Should setup lead to salvation? Does the cleaning ministry really need to be focused on helping volunteers and their lives actually be cleansed just as much as the church is being cleansed? <laughs> Does the children's church ministry really have to develop adults as much as they develop children? Like, Lord, why is the bar so high? Let's just lower it. If you're willing to help, do whatever you want. We'll isolate growth and development and discipleship and transformation and regeneration to a specific group of specific people at specific ministries. But then I read a devotional this week. And the title was Visions Becoming Reality. It reminded me that the vision that God has given me for the way is the vision that he has for the way. And I cannot tone it down. I cannot turn it off. I cannot reconfigure it. I cannot make it more acceptable. I cannot make it more user-friendly. It just is what it is. This is just a portion of the devotional. It was July 6th, day after my son's birthday. Niall turned five on the 5th. And then after the holiday here, this was July 6th. It says... We always have a vision of something before it actually becomes real to us. When we realize that the vision is real, but is not yet real in us, Satan comes to us with his temptations. And we're inclined to say that there is no point in even trying to continue. 
Instead of the vision becoming real to us, we've entered into a valley of humiliation. I'm not done with what I you, but listen to what he said. He says, God gives you a vision. You see the vision. Then you realize, oh God, it's, it's, it's real, but it's not real in me yet. So it's got to get real in me. And then it says, Satan comes and starts tempting you. Make it easier. Don't hold him accountable. Don't say anything. Don't tell him that tithing is required and accept, expected. Tell him that if your heart wants you to give a little bit, give a little bit. But if you'd rather give physically, then you don't have to give financially. Just make it really easy on him. And Satan begins to tempt you, and then the vision is gone. It says that you're inclined to say, there's no point in even trying to continue. And instead of the vision becoming real, we've entered into a valley of humiliation. Because God has given you a vision of something that he wants and he desires and he wants to call you and other people to. And then because it gets hard, you're humiliated and you say, why is this so hard? If it's God and if it's his, if it's his vision, then it should just come to pass with ease and cheers <laughs> and pats on the back. And congratulation. It goes on to say, life is not as idle ore, but iron dug from central gloom and battered by the shocks of doom to shape and to use. God gives us a vision and then he takes us down to the valley to batter us into the shape of that vision. It is in the valley that so many of us give up and faint. Every God-given vision will become real if we will only have patience. That's just the first third of this devotional. I printed it out and I posted it on the wall in my office. Because when the world and the enemy tries to tell me that's not the vision and that's not God, I'm going to say, away with you, Satan. Get thee behind me. I know my God. I know my king. I know his word. And I know what he's called me to do. I cannot lower the bar. I have to keep having tough conversations with people who are already laboring about how to labor better. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, follow me around. Let's get all these people. Let's sit them down. We're going to teach the word. They've been traveling all day. And then they come to him and say, hey, they're hungry. And then Jesus says, well, then you feed them. They're already laboring. They're already helping people. But instead of Jesus saying, let me lower the bar, you guys have done enough, he steps back and he says, I know that you're laboring and other people are lazy. However, you can labor better. That's a tough conversation. I have to keep having tough conversations with those who are fighting about how to fight better. Many people in this church are fighting the enemy, right? And they want to come to the, to the, to the corner and just have the pastor kind of throw in the towel for, hey, you've done enough. You fought as hard as you can, we're going to throw in the towel. But that's not how it works. You come to the corner, we spit some water in your mouth, right? We take the towel, dab your head, and then the bell rings and we pick you up and push you back in the ring. Go fight better. Yes. Keep fighting. Don't give up. Fight better. You're getting beat up because you're not fighting right. Jesus is in the garden and Peter pulls out his sword and chops off somebody's ear for Jesus. And Jesus says, let me tell you how to fight better. Put your sword down, right? Yep. And turn the other cheek. He didn't say stop fighting. He said fight better. Amen. You want to be mad at me as your pastor because I don't tell you stop fighting and I don't throw in the towel. I don't tell you you've done good enough. I tell you fight better. I have to have, keep having tough conversation with those who are praying about how to pray better. I'm already praying, nobody else is praying. I'm already here and nobody else is here. Well, that's good. So far, so good, but you can pray better. Jesus said, listen, don't just be praying out there. Find a closet. Yeah. 
I gotta have tough conversation with those who are giving about how to give better. One side of the conversation, like Raymond's talking about, what did, what did you say? It's not just, uh, uh, tell me again, Raymond, your life is not just on, on duration, but donation, right? So we're trying to convince people, not like how long you live, but how much have you given to the work of the Lord, to the kingdom, what you've been commanded to do, right? And Jesus is saying, well, that's good. Once you get to the point where you're doing what you should already be doing, which is giving to the kingdom, then Jesus doesn't say you've done enough, no more tough conversations. What does he say? Hey, well, you kind of left out the more important things. You should always give your tithe. That's easy. What about justice? What about mercy? What about the lost? What about the hurting? What about the orphans? What about the widows? So this idea of continuing to pursue the vision is the key for week number two of our series, SOAP. If this is what God wants for this church, I believe it's what God wants for all of his churches. If salvation and sanctification is what God wants for one person, I believe that that's what God wants for every person. It's not just salvation for some and sanctification for special ones. It's salvation for everybody and everybody who's saved to be sanctified. Last week, we looked at the S in soap and it was sincerely subjective. This week we're gonna look at the O, and it's about being obviously objective. S is sincerely subjective, O is obviously objective. So what does it mean to be obviously objective? Obviously means plain, manifest, clear, palpable, or unmistakable. So it's obvious. It's plain to see. It's clear. What it means to be palpable is like it's touchable. It's, it's, it's so clear. It's so obvious. This is a Bible. It's obvious. You can come up and touch it. You can actually open it and look at it. It's obvious that that's what this is. Whether you've seen one before or not, you will come to understand it. Once you see it, it's obvious. All right? Objective means not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering or representing facts. So obviously, objective. It's clearly not about what you think. It's clearly not about your opinion. It's clearly not about how you feel. Because that would be subjective, about what you think, how you feel, what you like, what you didn't like. Do you like the way it tastes or did you not like the way it tastes? That's subjective. It's not objective. Another way to look at being obviously objective is to be clearly consistent. We cannot change the word of God we cannot change the call of God. We cannot change the will of God based on our feelings or our desires. That's important for those who are already a part of God's church, and it's very important for those who are out there in the world still. The gospel is objective. It's one size fits all. The gospel is objective. It is one size fits all. There's not a gospel for you and a gospel for him and a gospel for her and a story for them. No, it's objective. It's one size fits all. It is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and it applies to everybody, regardless of how we feel about it. I'll put it like this. Two apples plus two apples equals four apples. You might not like the fact that it equals four apples, but whether you like it or not, it's four apples. You can say, I hate apples. They're ugly. They stink, and I don't like the way they taste. 
And that could be true because subjectively for you, that's true. Another person can, person can say, I love apples. They're sweet, they're red, they're green, they're juicy. I love them. And that could be true for them because subjective truth is dependent upon your opinions. Objective truth is something different. An apple is an apple whether you like it or not. Whether you like the way it tastes or not. There are a million things that most people initially don't like about God, don't like about the word of God, don't like about his government and his church. But that has nothing to do with whether or not those things are true and valid. Their truth and their validity is objective. That means whether you like it or not, it's true. Whether you want him to be God or not, he's God. Whether you want to read his word or not, it's his word. Whether you like how it was compiled or not, it does not matter. It's still true whether you like it or not. If somebody comes to me and says two plus two is not four, no matter how much they believe that, they're wrong. No matter how much you believe that you would have done it a different way, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he gets to be God and it gets to be his way. What happens to most of us over time is that we come to love the truth and the truth sets us free when we submit to it. So many people are in church, so we're talking in church and out of church, so many people are in church and it hurts and it's painful and they don't like it because they never submit to the truth. They rebel against it and they fight against it because something inside of them that says, I don't like apples, is true and they recognize they don't like apples. But they don't get to make that decision when it comes to the things of God. He's the apple maker. <laughs> he gets to declare how it's gonna be. And most of us, we don't fall in love with his way until we just submit to it. Lord, I don't like apples, but I'm going to eat them because you said I need to eat apples. And then eventually you come to find out, I like apples more than I thought I liked apples. <laughs> Matter of fact, there's a reason why God told me to eat apples. And if I hadn't have ate apples or went on sidewalk sanctuary, even though I hate apples, but I gotta lower the bar. <laughs> no, no, no. When we go out into the world to evangelize, to bring people to Jesus, we have to do it with an understanding that everyone we meet who has not repented of their sins and turned to Jesus for salvation is going to hell. That's an objective truth that you might not like. Your mother, your grandmother, your friend, your best friend, your son, your daughter, everyone you know that has not said, I've repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus for salvation, they are going to hell for eternity to burn there. They don't have to, but that's the truth. It's objective. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you wish it was different. The truth is objective and you cannot change it. If you're going to go out into the world to talk to a friend, to share a meal, to knock on a door, that's the truth you need to have in your mind. That will help you to overcome your shyness because when you realize that my shyness could have them stay in hell, then my shyness doesn't get to rule over me. My master gets to rule over me. Their only hope is for the Holy Spirit to awaken their dead soul to the truth and the life-giving power that can only be found in Jesus. That's the only hope. 
When I go knocking on doors, it's not to make the church happy. It's not to fill these seats. When I go flyering cars, it's not because I feel better about putting a flyer for my church on somebody's car. It's because I understand the objective truth that if I don't tell them, somebody might not tell them. If they don't think about God, if they don't pray, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do a work, I have to be willing to sacrifice what I would rather be doing with my days, what I would rather be doing with my time, what I would rather be doing with my finances, in prayer and in hope that the Holy Spirit will use our efforts to awaken them to the truth about their eternal destiny. Amen. Don't go out there for me. <laughs> Don't go out there for the way. Amen. Go out there because God says you should go. How will they hear without a preacher? Yes. How will they know unless they're told? That's what the word says, and you might not like it. But it's the truth. It's objective. Anyone minus Jesus is dead. Two plus two is four. Anyone minus Jesus is dead. You don't have to like the way that tastes, but you better believe it's true. Sin can only be washed away with the soap that is made with the blood of Jesus. That's it. That's the only way to wash away sin. We ain't talking about making you better. We ain't talking about dealing with your convictions and your addictions. We ain't talking about it. What we're talking about is your sin can only be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Their sin can only be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Revelation 7:14. So John has been transported spiritually up to heaven and he's seen all these things that are happening, what's going to happen in the future. And he sees this group of people who are there worshiping God and, and John says to an angel he says, "Who are these people?" And the angel says, you know who they are. He says, I don't really know who they are. Tell me who they are. This is Revelation 7, 14. Then he said to John, he says, he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So what I believe is going to happen is that there is going to be the rapture. All who are already washed and have been washed by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Christ, we're going to be called up to meet Jesus in the clouds. Then there's going to be seven years of the worst things imaginable on the planet. If you think that what we've experienced so far is bad, just wait till the tribulation. I don't believe we'll be there because God is a God of justice. If you've already been judged for those sins, which Jesus has been judged for my sins, why would I have to pay for them again? I don't. He already did. But there will be a group of people that get one last chance in seven years to give their life to Jesus. And some of them will. And then we will all be in heaven like John saying, hey, who's that group over there? And like, you guys know who they are. Those are the ones that came in the last seven years when it was crazy. People were dying and getting their heads chopped off. And the sun, you thought it was hot these last couple of days? <laughs> it says that the elements are literally melting and people are hiding in caves. And people will still not turn to Jesus, but some will. And he says, look at them. They got washed by the blood in that last moment. Amen. The point is, it's objectively true. A thousand years ago, there was only one way to be washed, by the blood. Today, there's only one way to be washed, and that's by the blood. And at the tribulation, there'll only be one way to be washed, and it'll be by the blood. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at just one chapter. And we're going to look at it from inside the church and outside of the church. This is the chapter in the Bible where the church is birthed and where the church comes crashing into the world. So... There was no church, there was God and his people as always, but the church as we know it is birthed in a, in a particular moment like every other child, it's birthed. 
And then literally what happens is the world is moving at, at full force and this new church that's been born is moving at full force and there's this meeting or this clashing, this, this uh, uh, running into each other uh, that takes place. That's kind of what our series is about is how the church is always built for the building up of those who are in it, right? You guys are here. Why are you here if you're saved? It's so that you can be built up in the things of God. But it's also built for the calling of those who are outside into it. It's not, it's kind of like when we talk about Jesus and we look at the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not a wooden box or a golden box. It's both a wooden box and a golden box, right? Because he's both of those things. The church is both. A lot of churches only focus on those who are inside and building us up and building us up and building us up. But to me, that's, that's kind of like looking at just the gold side of it. I think the real church should be just as focused in building you up as it is in calling others in who are outside. So that's what we see in this chapter. It's going to be Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read through it and then just highlight a few things that I want to talk to you guys about this morning. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation, say every nation, nation. under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look. Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Iliamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others were mocking and said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire will show, uh, will, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified and put him to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, 
Moreover, my flesh will also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God sworn, had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church Daily, those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2. Great chapter. <laughs> this is your history. I just thought about that right now. Like, this is the way. This is the church that I belong to. It was 2,000 years ago, but it's this church. This is how it was birthed. You want to look at your family lineage? Don't look up, what is it? Ancestry.com. <laughs> You don't have to go far. This is the church. This is the blueprint. This is the map. This is our lineage. These are our forefathers. This is the government. This is how God ordained his church. This is how he birthed it into existence. And this is what we should be experiencing today. Those who are being added daily because of those who have already been added and how we live for Jesus. So I want to look at a few things here. Verse 1 and 2 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house, the whole house, where they were sitting. The church is called to gather. Somebody say amen. amen. So 
It's an objective truth. When somebody tells you, I don't need church to serve God, they are wrong. Because the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together. Do you need it like you need the blood of Jesus to wash you of your sins? No, but it is a package deal. They were gathered. That is the example that we have of the church. And what happened when they were gathered? The Spirit came in and did something collectively that the Spirit does not do individually. I know Jesus. I know the Spirit of God. I encounter him almost on a daily basis in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But it is different than the way I encounter him here with you guys. And that's what you see in the scriptures. They were gathered. They were together. And what happened? The Spirit came and filled the whole house. All of them at the same time with something special. That's what we experience during worship. That's what we experience during Bible study. That's what we experience during fellowship times together. That's what we experience during meet and greet. Don't let people convince you because they've been convinced because they don't like the church. They don't like the way those apples taste. They don't like the way it feels there. That they don't need the church. They're wrong. It's not subjective. It's not, do I want church? Do I not want church? It's, you need to have a better definition of what church is, and you need to understand that God says, objectively, do not forsake the assembly. You don't have to go to this church, but you better go to some church. It's different, and that's what you see when the church is birthed. On day one, God didn't wait for like a bunch of different versions of the church. On day one, he said, don't forget to gather. And when you do gather, my spirit will come and do something special in the whole house. But we want to talk during worship and we want to be outside. And you know what I'm saying? Like, you're already here. Just do what God said do. Gather and expect the spirit to come and do something special. It goes on, verse 3. What happens then when they're gathered and the Spirit comes? Then there appear to them divided tongues as a fire. We're getting crazy now. One sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, all these people from all these places, like you heard me talk about. Every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together, right? So now, listen. The Spirit comes, it's, it's, you can hear it, you can almost see it. And then all these people who are outside the church, it says, they begin to come rushing to the church. Think about this for a second. We are trying to get them and bring them in. And the Bible says when the people who are inside are filled with the Spirit, they will come. Amen. But we want to lower the bar in the church. They were confused when they got there because everyone heard these people speaking in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language? And then it goes through this list of all the different places they came from, all over the world, literally. And they say, We hear them speaking in our own tongues, in verse 11, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? But others mocking say they are full of new wine. So this is when the church comes crashing into the world, people are going to see something real, something genuine, something different than they've ever seen before. Some of them are going to come and say, this must be God. And others are going to come and say, you people are crazy. That's just the truth. That's the reality. When they get here and when the church meets the world and this explosion and this collision happens, everybody's not going to just bow down and say, God, you're real, but some will. In the church, the Spirit begins to move 
The word of God is literally coming out of the people who are in the church. We crash into the world, and the people outside are trying to figure out how is it that this particular group of people that we could not previously connect with, think about this for a second, turn off whatever you've heard before, whatever you've made your mind up about this scripture, put it to the side and think about this for a second. You've got all these people from all these different walks of life and they show up to the church and here's the real question they're asking. How is it that this group of people that we could not connect with before, that we could not communicate with before, that had no influence in our life before, how is it that now all of us can connect with them? And all of us can understand them and it's like they understand us. That's what's happening. <clears throat> the objectivity of the will of God and the word of God is on display. It's one size fits all. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter where you've come from. The spirit of God will connect with you when you're exposed to it. They're saying, look, I don't even, they don't speak my language, they don't have my culture, they didn't grow up where I grew up, they didn't have my challenges, they didn't have my parents, they didn't know what I've come out of, right? They weren't involved in the sin that I'm involved in, but for some reason, these people are able to connect with all these different people in all the walks of life. That's the testimony of what the Spirit of God does when the church comes into contact with the world. We do a Friday night praying in the spirit here. We do prayer with understanding on a Sunday morning before service. Every single day that we meet here, upstairs in the four to six classroom, there is a prayer time and prayer service. Then during the altar call, we have specific times in a service when people come forward that people know that this is the time to be coming and to get prayed over. Why do we do that? We believe that the church is still crashing into the world. And we believe that when those things happen, there is a clarity and a communication that will take place between God, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, and those who are seeking. We believe that worship and teaching time is set aside for worship and for teaching. We believe that the word of God needs to be proclaimed clearly and that when people who do not know God come into a place, like I said before, they might not like worship, but they can tell that these people are sincerely worshiping the God that they believe in. They might not like the way the word of God tastes, but it is the truth and the word of God that we give to them when they come into this place. These are not happenstance or by chance. It's what we believe God has said and what we believe God has shown here. We understand that we blanket a service with prayer. If somebody comes into this place that does not know Jesus, we've been praying for them to come. We've been asking God to open their eyes and open their hearts. We were praying on Friday nights and Sunday mornings and before service this morning, and we're praying right now without them knowing about it. And then when they come to the altar, we're going to be praying for them. But we believe that that is done without them knowing about it. Why? Because what they need when they come in here is something that they do understand, the presence of the living God, the love of God, the worship of God, and the word of God. We hope that those who have a real gift in the area of prayer 
will hear God speak a word to them for certain people. Those in the church and those who we want to come into the church that don't know Jesus yet. It means a whole lot more when somebody can come to the altar. I've heard testimonies over and over again. Hey, we were at a Friday night prayer and and so and so came up to me and put their hands on me and this is what they said and it was the word I needed to hear. I had a word like that from one of the brothers at a men's fellowship and Bible study. Uh, Nairi was praying with with Mary at at prayer and then she prayed with Naomi back there and then a, a, a man of God came with a word for her. That's how it's supposed to work. Not confusion and craziness during service. What really matters is God, you must see me. You must know me. If you've given one of your sons or daughters a word to tell Tell me that I'm seen and that I'm loved. That's what I want. That's right. Or we can just let everybody do whatever they want to do. It's interesting that when you first read this scripture, it sounds like, hey, everybody's speaking in tongues and everybody's doing what they want to do and it's all out of control and it's crazy, but that's not what you're actually reading. What does it say? Everybody from the outside who came in, they had complete clarity of what was happening. Right? To us, we see tongues and fire and we get all crazy and lose our minds. That's not what it says. What it says is everybody from the outside saw and heard that something was happening. They came to the church, and when they got to the church, they they understood every single word. They They were amazed that we could all, how do I understand and you understand, and how does that person understand? Where did you grow up? What kind of family did you come from? Well, this is where I grew up and what kind of family I came from. How is it that we're both hearing clearly and understanding what God is saying? Because it wasn't a tongue service and it wasn't a crazy service. What was happening with the people inside was different from what was happening with the people outside. In this church, when I keep trying to talk to us about how the ministry works and what God has said and what he wants to do with us who are inside, but connecting with with those who are outside, when they come into this place, what we've done in the unseen should be what they experience in the scene. We want them to understand what's happening here. Every word, whether they agree with it or not, we want them to understand it and see it, right? You know, we talk a lot in this church about about, like links and how things work and how ministry leaders are connected to other ministry leaders. You know, the Bible talks about being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. You gotta have a plan, somebody say amen. Amen. Like, I'm not just doing this. for the sake of doing it. You know what I want? I want a family to come in here and when their kids go upstairs, I want them to just be blessed beyond belief and that to be synergized when they go home. I want them to come home with packets and prayers and tasks to do so that they have to look at their parents and say, Mom, this is what I learned in church. What'd you learn? Right? And when somebody, when somebody comes into worship, I want that worship team to have been playing and practicing and planning and asking God, not just what song are we good at, but what is the song? What do I have to do to be able to pour forth worship that can be received? I want the people that meet them in the parking lot to be able to say, this is a new person. I have no idea where they come from or what they're going through. But you know what I do know is anyone minus Jesus is dead. How can I help them to receive life? How can I not run them off because of my personal perspective on what church should be? How can I have the vision of God of what he wants his church to be? And how can I see the fruitfulness of that pour forth like it poured forth in the scriptures that God has given us? So let's see how that happened in this next verse. Verse 14. 
Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what the prophet spoke. It'll come to pass in the last days that I'll pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. My men servants and maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. God goes on to say that I'm going to show all these works. I'm going to do all these things. And then he says in verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter begins to explain what those who are outside are witnessing in those who are inside. He says, this isn't strange. This isn't weird. Don't be scared. Let me show you in Joel where God said he was going to do what you're seeing. If you can't explain to somebody in Scripture what you're doing, stop doing it. If you can't explain to somebody how God is using that to bear fruit, stop doing it. Peter is able to simply say, look at what he said in Joel. He said he's going to pour out his spirit. People are going to have dreams and vision. They're going to prophesy. Prophesying is saying, this is what God is going to do in your future. And then seeing it come to pass. If you're prophesying over people and it doesn't happen, stop prophesying. We're not batting for, you know, <laughs> one out of a thousand prophecies come true. Just stop. We don't have to have all the gifts until God says you've got the gift. And even those that have it, let's develop it. Remember we talked about learning how to run? See, this challenges those who are outside, and it should encourage those who are inside, right? When the word comes forth and it's like, look, this ain't crazy. This is the word of God. Those who are outside is like, how can that be God? That doesn't make sense to me. But those who are inside should be saying, yeah, that's encouraging. God is here and it is real. And we are seeing what he said we would see. Amen. Explanation is such an important part of leading people to Christ. Such an important part of growing those who are already in the, bi are already in the body. Explain some things. Explain salvation. Explain baptism. Explain prayer. Explain discipleship. Explain ministry. Like, be able to explain. Why are we doing what we're doing? What does the Bible say? What are the depths of it? What are the roots of it? I've been watching this thing on, on Catholicism, and it's driving me crazy. It's driving me absolutely crazy because if people only knew what they were doing and where it came from and why they were doing it, I'm 100% convinced that they would stop doing it for the most part. But nobody explains and nobody cares. I was thinking about it with our church, with evangelism, particularly Sidewalk Sanctuary. We're already talking and trying to develop courses for people to learn how to evangelize better and to grow in that area. But we need to look at the, the, the enemies of the church that are alive in the world right now, right? So you have those who are anti-God, and we need to be able to, to teach and explain how that works and, and what that does to deter people from God. But there are also cults that exist that they already know you're going to come to God because God has placed in you a desire for eternity. So they say, if you're going to come, we just want to have you go to the wrong God. So our sidewalk sanctuary has to go beyond, let's go out with flyers. Let's go out and be able to explain some things. Where do you come from? What's your background? What church were you raised up in? Where does the Bible say that you should do some of those things that you do? How do you feel about confession? How do you feel about the Pope being God on earth? What do you really think? Can I explain some things to you and can we pray? Amen. But we can't even go out. 
We got to argue about stuff that doesn't matter. Just surrender to Jesus. Just surrender. I'm going to close last few verses. Verse 22. The picture still, please don't lose the picture. In the church, outside of the church. The church is gathering, getting filled with the Spirit. The gifts of God are coming through them. The outsiders are coming to the church looking for help and answers and hope and, and direction. And there's this clashing. And here's Peter explaining things initially about what was happening. And then here he begins to proclaim the obviously objective truth about Jesus. He says to all these people who are now gathered around, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves already know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified. You've put to death him whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I'm going to skip over this part where, where David, <laughs> where he talks about David, David's testimony. What he's saying is David knew that he was Jesus and that, and that David was not God or even the representation of God on earth. Jump down to verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that the fruit of his body would come according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. That's the church. We are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Why is this the obviously objective portion of the scripture? Because it doesn't matter who they were. And it doesn't matter what their sins were. It doesn't matter what they liked and what they didn't like. Listen to what Peter said. You crucified them. You put him on that tree. You're the ones that betrayed him and had him buried. And you all were witnesses to everything. That's kind of unfair, isn't it? You don't know me. You don't know where I come from. How can you say that? Because it's one size fits all. You all did it. We all did it. Amen. Jesus wasn't crucified for your neighbor. He was crucified for you and for your sins. Right. You crucified him. If you've never pictured yourself nailing the nails into his hands, you might want to close your eyes right now and do so because you crucified him. And if you realize that you crucified him and then he rose from the dead and said, can I wash you with my holy blood so that you can be forgiven for everything you've done, including crucifying me, you might have an easier time serving him. That's right. Yes. It might be easier to say, I want this, but even if I don't get it, Lord. It might be easier to say, God, you have to deliver in this area, but even if you don't. Amen. It might be easier to say, Lord, I can barely afford a backpack for my own children, but for the sake of another, Lord. Amen. He says, it's obviously objective. You all crucified him. 
Peter doesn't stand up there and proclaim this to all these people as if he's saying, like the church was saying, right? The Pharisees were saying, you guys are all sinners and we're the only ones that can pray. Come to us with your offering. Come to us with your sacrifice and we'll go talk to God for you. Peter wasn't doing that. Why? Because the church had just been birthed. And now the church leaders understood that they were just as much sinners as everybody else and that they had to be saved the same way that everybody else had to be saved. The church leaders also understood that the veil had been torn and anybody could go behind it. But God did not supernaturally remove the church leaders. He ushered in a new era of discipleship where these men of God would say to the congregation, follow me as I follow Christ. It's obviously objective. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So do we go out to the streets and say, and this is, this is a question that <laughs> I think we all have to answer for ourselves. Do we go out to the streets and say, you crucified him? <laughs> Initially, I would say no, but that's kind of what Peter did. We now look at the people who stand with bullhorns and crosses and say, you're crazy. But that's pretty much what happened when the church was birthed. Yes. Amen. The difference was these men and these women, they showed by becoming the church and living it out for everybody to see that what they were proclaiming was real and true. We like to say those people are crazy and nobody's ever going to see them again, right? But imagine if the same people who were on the bullhorns were the same ones handing out backpacks and lunches. And they were the same ones being able to say, man, I don't have the best of everything because those who are in my church, we all have enough. That's right. Amen. Then maybe we would stop saying to stop proclaiming like that because it would be recognizable that it was sincerely subjective what we were saying. So what happens to these people who hear? When they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? You know what's interesting? Even in the church, I can't remember the last time somebody came and said, Pastor, what should I do? When's the last time somebody unsaved came to you and said, Believer, what should I do? I thought that was interesting right now. I don't know what it is. I, I think it's partly it's the culture, but it should not be the culture of the church where we all think that we know what to do. How is it a church if nobody's asking, what should I do? I've recently made a commitment to stop telling people what to do and wait for people to ask because you can tell anybody something, but if they haven't asked, they ain't going to listen anyway. I'm done with that. When the church started, Peter, Peter was never there. He didn't even have to start that. I got to say I'm done. Peter didn't even start. He waited. He told them the truth. He told them it was objective, and it applied to everybody, and then he waited for somebody to say, what should I do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter then said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 
Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We don't have to be what the church world has convinced us great evangelists are. We just need to be the church that Jesus called us to be. I love what Raymond said. You think evangelism, it's, it's Billy Graham and, and Greg Laurie, because that's what the world has convinced us evangelism is. Ray says it's a conversation. And what I read in Acts chapter 2, when the church was birthed, it was a conversation. They told them the truth. They gave them their experience. They told them that they could all be saved. And then they said, if you gladly receive that and you understand it, give your life to Jesus. Just repent and get baptized. Right? I've heard Raymond, I've heard Gary get up here and say, listen, baptism is not something that you necessarily have to go through a course through. If you've already been in church, you've been saved for a while, go through the course, learn some stuff and get baptized. But otherwise, if God is moving on you and you just got saved and something is happening to you, let's be the church that we see here where 3,000 people come in, they're cut to the heart. They say, what do I have to do? You need to repent and you need to be baptized. They say, I repent, I renounce everything. I'm going with this body of believers. Where are you guys going on Tuesday? Where are you guys going on Friday? What service is there on Sunday? When is that prayer service again when is the baptismal it's not till February no I need to get that done immediately or we can just make up our own church that's how I feel girl <laughs> so they continued in verse 42 steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and in fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. I'm closing. Matter of fact, Isaiah, come up here and start playing. <laughs> this is the hard part. If we're real about it, <laughs> it's hard to humble yourself and let somebody else lead you. It's hard to ask, what should I do, and then actually do it. It's hard to say, what is the vision of the church? And if it's different than my vision, I'm going to go with this vision because this is my church. That's hard to do. But two plus two is four. <laughs> you don't have to like it. You don't have to want it to be that way. You don't even have to like the way it tastes when you eat it. But there's no other meals that are going to be served up here. The vision is the vision. The direction is the direction. It's Bible-based. It's prayed, prayed over and prayed through, and it will continue to be pursued. So if you want to be here, just ask God. God, show me how to submit. Show me how to ask, what should I do? Show me how to pour into the vision that you've given or lead me somewhere where I don't have to do those things. I pray that you're strong. I pray that you have the boldness to be able to say, Lord, I'll be obedient. And I trust you to answer all my questions along the way. Because that's what we see in the Bible. Peter, get out of the boat and follow me. I'd love to do that, Lord, but can you please give me a description of what we're going to be doing for the next three years? So I can make a, a very self-conscious and aware decision about what I'm willing to commit to. And we'll get into an agreement about what you want and what I want and how we can come together and kind of do this together, Jesus. Nah, Peter, get out of the boat, follow me. If you don't want to, I'm going to call other people and they're going to follow me. Rich young ruler, hey, I'm doing all this stuff for the church already. What do I still need to do? He says, sell everything and follow me. Nope, Jesus kept walking. Because Jesus wasn't going to change the vision for this particular person. He says, listen, this is the only way to be saved, and I'm the only one you can follow. Either you're going to do what I've called you to do, but it's objective. It does not change because you don't like it. Amen. I'm not naive enough to say that I, that I think it's easy. What I am confident to say is that this is the way to fruitfulness. 
This is the way to the salvation of your lives and the lives of those that you love and to those who are afar off. Not because I want it to be that way because that's what I've seen in the scriptures and that's what I've experienced in my life. It was the most humbling thing to submit to authority when I got saved because I didn't have any authority before it. It was the most humbling thing to look at my pastor and say, dude, I'm more educated than you are. I'm bigger and stronger than you are. I feel like I read more than you read. And you're only a year older than me. Why would I submit to you? That does not make sense. But God says, it doesn't matter if you like it or if it makes sense to you. What matters is that I've ordained it. So humble yourself and do what I've called you to do. There will come a day when you can lead, but that ain't today. Today's the day when you follow. And then when I became a leader, you know what I longed for? The days when I could just follow. It's so much easier. Many of us know what it's like to, you can't wait to get out of the house and then once you're out, what you want? You want to go back. You're like, there's food there all the time and I don't have to work for it. I don't have to pay rent there. I was covered. They had rules that I had to follow that I didn't like, but good Lord. It's not easy, church. Believe me, in many ways, personally, I wish that it wasn't that way. I would love if God said to me, Vaughn, I want you to be a pastor, but all you have to worry about is proclaiming the truth. Don't worry about how you lead people. Just tell them the truth and leave it at that. But no, he says, listen, let not many of you be teachers because you're going to have a stricter judgment. He says, disciple and continue disciple. He says, follow the vision. He says, don't give up. He says, don't lower the bar. And I'm like, Lord, you should have told me that before I committed. But the call was objective, just like to everybody else. I was sitting in a boat and he said, follow me. I didn't get all the details up front. Now I just try to save people from the heartache and pain of rebellion. You rebel in your marriage, heartache and pain. You rebel in the ministry, heartache and pain. You rebel in your friendships and relationships, heartache and pain. You rebel against the word of God and the will of God, heartache and pain. And at the end of the day, what's it all about for me? Souls being saved. Souls being saved. My rebellion, I believe with all my heart. I understand the will of God and it not being able to be stopped, but I also understand the sovereign will of God to use people. Right? So I believe that if I rebel, it's going to eternally affect other people. So I want to pray. I want to pray quickly for those inside and those outside of the church. The obviously objective truth of God. Why don't you just close your eyes right where you are. You don't have to stand. If you feel compelled, you can. But just a couple of quick questions. The first is... Uh, The same question that Peter presented to this group of people at the very first church service. This is how the church service went. They gathered to talk about God and to worship God and to thank God for who he was. God sent his spirit and filled all of them. They proclaimed the truth to non-believers. And at the end of that time, the non-believers asked, what do I need to do? And Peter said, just repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's all we've done today. That's all any church has done all over the world today. They've gathered to worship Jesus. They've proclaimed the truth. 
And then they ask those that have not put their faith in Jesus yet if they want to. It's objective, it's true, it's always going to be the same. If you're here and you've never repented, that's the only way to be washed. You have to say, I know I'm a sinner. And no matter what I try to do, I cannot wash away the sins I've committed. We are here to tell you that Jesus can and he already has. All you have to do is, is take the soap and be washed. If that's you, and you're asking in your heart, what must I do now? Would you raise your hand so I can tell you and I can pray with you? I see you. I see you, sis. Anybody else this morning? Heads bowed, eyes closed. It's between you and the Lord. Nobody looking around. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Anybody else would say, what must I do? I want to be saved. Just raise your hand so I can see you. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the honest hearts and the honest souls here in this place, Lord. I know that they are saved, not because I want them to be, not because I like the way that that sounds, but because your word is true and you say that if we will repent, if we will ask you to wash away our sins, you are faithful to do so, Lord. Bring that confirmation. Send your spirit just like you said you would and that you have for so many others. Send your spirit in a fresh and amazing and powerful way into these hearts and into these souls this morning, God. That they would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are saved and that they would surrender every area of their life, every area of their mind and their thoughts from before, Lord God. Their personal preferences would not rule and reign, but you would be master of their lives, master of their hearts, master of their minds, Lord Jesus that your will would be done. And do a swift work, Lord. Don't let it take decades to surrender, Lord. Let there be a surrendering and an upheaval in their lives, Lord, and a laying down of the old and a taking up of the new, Lord. Give them visions of being washed and cleansed in Jesus' name. I was nowhere you came to my rescue From the grave I've been raised when I needed a savior to save me, Jesus, you made a way. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.